to introduce our Dharma Talk speaker today, Ellen Webb. Ellen was born and raised in Berkeley, California. She has been a dancer, choreographer, and teacher for most of her life. Ellen is married. There's a husband over there under the bell. <laughs> you can't hide. And lives in Oakland, where she raised two children. She began her Zen practice with Joko Beck and Diane Rossetto at the Bay Zen Center in Oakland in 1992. In 2002, she started practicing here at the Berkeley Zen Center and received lay ordination from Sojin Roshi in 2010. She was a head student or Shuso at BZC in 2018. She has held several practice positions and is currently head server the health and safety coordinator, and the procurer of Oriyoki supplies, which are the temple uh, monastic eating bowls that we do from time to time. Her Dharma name is Maiko Kaishin, which means dancing light, open heart. Please open your heart to us and let's hear what you got to say. Thank you, Russ. Yep. And welcome, everyone. Um, we often especially welcome the people who are new today. Uh, I see quite a few people who I haven't seen before. Um, so I want to welcome you, but I actually want to welcome everyone. Um, I'm really happy to see everyone and to see those on Zoom as well. I'm going to begin with a Zen story, or what we call a koan, um, and this story begins with two young monks who are um, kind of coming to pay their respects to a Zen master who lives in a hermitage. His name is Seppo, and um, when they come to uh, his gate, he steps out and he says, kind of a, a Zen challenge, like, what is this? And um, I think sort of baffled, they just repeat what he said. They say, what is this? And um, he's, Seppo is sort of disappointed, I think, with this reply and just walks back into his hermitage. <clears throat> and that's kind of the end of their encounter. And the two young ones continue on their pilgrimage and go to a monastery of another Zen master named Gato, who's actually a very close uh, Dharma brother, so to speak, of Seppo. And um, I'm kind of abbreviating this a little, but they say, um, they tell this story to Gato, and um, Ganto, who knows Seppo very well, says, um, uh, 
if you want to know the last word, if you want to know the last word, it's just this. And um, the last word is kind of associated with a similar expression, which uh, means um, the water used to moisten the lips of a dying person. So this would imply that these words are kind of the last words that somebody would say when they're dying, when everything else is sort of dropped away. And it's actually an expression we use quite a lot here, just this. And so I think it has resonance and meaning for a lot of people, but it occurred to me that maybe for people who were new here, it didn't. And it made me remember that when I first came here, and I came from another Zen center that kind of used different language, um, I actually felt like people were sort of speaking in a code that I didn't really totally understand. And um, over time, I kind of got with the program. But in the beginning, I was kind of baffled. And um, <clears throat> I can't really remember many of the um, of the phrases or words that, that were hard for me. But one that I remember is fairly simple, which was the backward step. And, um, you know, people would use it and then they wouldn't use it. And I don't know why I didn't just ask somebody what they were talking about, but I didn't. And it probably took me 10 years. You know, I sort of had this image of somebody stepping back off a cliff or something. But, um, you know, it, it finally dawned on me that it just meant sort of stepping back from, uh, you know, your reaction or your... Um, sort of relation to what was going on in the moment. Um, so anyway, I wanted to give, you know, a little bit more sort of possible words for just this, which might be um, Ram Das's um, be here now, or just being present, or an open awareness, or as Suzuki Roshi uh, used to say, things as it is. And um, I studied this koan with a group of friends um, late last spring. And so this, these words, just this, were kind of on my mind um, when I went away for the summer. And, um, you know, I was kind of asking myself, like, you know, what is the this of just this? What is it? You know, it's, it's our breath, it's our movement, it's our sensory, physical sensory awareness, it's our sensations, our emotions, um, our thoughts, is it our concepts, is it our fantasies, is it our memories? You know, I was just kind of inquiring into, into these things as it is. You know, I was just going about my life. And um, it kind of stayed with me all summer. You know, kind of, well, if it is our fantasies, how come, and our thoughts, how come it sometimes feels like those take us so far away from the present moment? Um, so 
I did go away for the summer for a couple of months. I went to a place I often go in the summer, which is a very remote part of the North Cascades National Park. And um, I stay in a small house that my parents bought there many years ago. And it's quite remote. I've talked about it often. And one reason I've talked about it often is because I usually give a talk once a year, and it often falls very soon after I've been in Stahican. And so many of my stories are about Stahican, whereas maybe if I gave a talk in January, it would be about West Oakland or something. But um, so those of you who have heard other Stahican stories, um, bear with me, please. Um, so it's quite a remote place, as I said. There's um, no connecting roads. You can't drive there. It's not an island, but it's uh, at the end of a very long inland lake. And um, it's in the North Cascades National Park. And it's um, kind of a deep valley uh, with mountains on either side. And so you have to take a boat for quite a long time to get there, or else hike in, or ride a horse, or somehow get there without a car. Um, there are cars there, but um, you know you have to either take a boat or you have to get your car on a barge to get it up there. So there's not many cars. They, there's no telephones. The internet is kind of wonky, and it's just generally like quieter. Um, than Oakland, where I normally live. And it gave me quite an opportunity to sort of investigate this question of what this is, or what the this of this is. And um, I, um, kind of as I was doing that, I um, had two things on my mind that sort of accompanied me in this inquiry. And one was um, something that Sojin often said, which is, you should always know where your breath is. Um, and another one was um, a story about Suzuki Roshi where some student was asking him, or sort of complaining about you know, sinking all the time in Zazen. And um, Suzuki Roshi said, what's wrong with thinking? So both of those sort of little phrases stayed with me as I went about my summer and my thoughts on this subject of justice. And I am going to tell a couple of Stihikin stories. And um, the first one, actually both of them are about hiking. And um, so the first one um, is about a hike that I had taken many, many, many times in my life to a small lake, um, just a mile or so above uh, the road there. And um, uh, it's not a big lake. Um, and the trail goes up uh, the side of the mountain and then around the lake, and then it continues up quite a big mountain. 
And most people who visit the lake, and it's a fairly popular spot, um, kind of go to the first end of the lake or around part of the lake, but they don't continue, most people, up the mountain or around the, the far side of the lake. Um, but um, I did go past the, the middle of the lake on the trail, and um, suddenly there was like this eruption of like little um, toads just jumping up and down like mad. They're like little, like this big, and it wasn't the first time I'd seen them, so I wasn't completely surprised. But this probably happens twice a year, but could happen more, that apparently the toads in the lake, you know, evolve from um, tadpoles into toads, and, and they crawl out of the lake, and they're kind of between the lake and the trail, and then a few of them are on the trail, and then they're above the trail. And there are literally thousands and thousands of them. And, um, you know, they're afraid of me. So they're like just moving like crazy, just jumping up and down like mad. And they're very close together. So it's kind of like the earth is moving. And it's a kind of just remarkable moment of aliveness. Um, but it's a little jarring also. It's a little bit like what's happening. And um, so, um, you know, I had some thoughts like, um, I'm so happy that this kind of evidence that, um, you know, climate change isn't destroying all the amphibians in the, in the area, because, you know, amphibians are very susceptible to climate change. And then I thought, oh, they're so cute. You know, they're just so cute, but what happens to all of them? I mean, there's thousands of them. And then I thought, well, I guess most of them don't survive. Most of them get eaten. And I was a little bit, like, sad about that. And then I thought, but if they did all survive, this lake would be, like, completely full of adult toads, which I, I didn't really like that idea either. Um, so, at some point, I kind of came back, returned, just being there with all this aliveness, which actually, if you stop, kind of settles down a little bit. Um, and, um, you know, I noticed the lake, which was very quiet, and the toads and the you know, a few bird sounds. And um, I noticed about the thoughts I was having that, and maybe you noticed this too, that most of them had quite a bit to do with me. That, um, you know, I was happy that there was this evidence that climate change hadn't destroyed the amphibians. I thought the toads were cute. I was sorry they were all probably going to get eaten by snakes or owls or something else. And I was also kind of happy that the lake wouldn't be full of 10,000 adult toads. Um, and, you know, I, I just realized that so much of my perception had to do with what I liked and what I didn't like. And um, so I'll read you a quote um, from 
Suzuki Roshi, for the most part, even though we think we are observing things as it is, actually we are not. Why? Because our discrimination, our desire, because of our discrimination or our desires, the Buddhist way is to try hard to let go of this kind of emotional discrimination of good and bad, to let go of our prejudices and to see things as it is. So, you know, that was sort of information for my inquiry. And, you know, I, I realized that for me, it is hard to be open to things that I don't like. Um, I, it's hard to be open to evidence of climate change. I notice myself sort of skipping those newspaper articles about polar bears starving to death on icebergs. And, um, you know, it's hard to turn toward sickness and pain and death and sadness and the suffering and violence in the world. It's hard to turn toward those things and really be with them. So we're, we kind of turn away and we distract ourselves and repress and avoid. And it's a little bit, I think, easier to turn toward the things that we like, that give us pleasure, that we love. But I think there's always a twinge in that of knowing that life is impermanent and those things are too. Um, so that's the first Hagen story about hiking. And here's the second one. <clears throat> so again, I was hiking on a trail that I was very familiar with um, along um, the Stahican River. Um, Stahican actually um, is a Native American word that means the way through. Um, Stahican itself was not um, a, a home to Native people, but it was um, a sort of a, a way through the mountains from the eastern plains of Washington to the coast, and sort of a trading route also. Um, so I was walking along this river, and um, I was with um, one of my children and her husband, uh, and also who I am very familiar with, and also a cousin of my son-in-law, who I didn't know hardly at all, a young man who was maybe 20, and very nice young man, but I didn't know him well. But I hiked that trail many, many times with my children, and for many years, when they were little, I had sort of shepherded them down the trail and coaxed them. Um, but now they're in their 30s, and they're very strong hikers, all of them. And um, and now much stronger than I am. And um, there's a little bit of denial, I think, in our family that this sort of turn has happened. Um, I don't think people, including me, really want to admit that um, they can all out hike me completely, and that um, 
I have a hard time sometimes keeping up with them. And, um, you know, whatever this also entails that I'm getting older and probably will die at some point. So there's just a little bit of denial in the family about this, and especially I notice in my kids. And anyway, so on this hike, um, instead of them being in front, I was in front because really I can't keep up with them anymore. So um, they put me in the front and then they, you know, hike behind me to sort of um, keep pace with me. And so we were hiking along the trail and um, they were talking and I was talking with them and I turned my head and I tripped and I feel flat on my face. And, um, and then, you know, I sort of got up and they sort of helped me up and I kind of dusted myself off and I, I know I hadn't really hurt myself, but, um, but, you know, and the, and the sort of impulse, my impulse and, and I, and my kid's impulse was to sort of say, you're fine, mom, let's keep going. But this young man who I didn't know very well, just stopped everybody and he just said, wait a minute. Mrs. Walker, which is actually not my name, but my married name, he said, Mrs. Walker, you can't go on. You have to sit down. And maybe we have to go home. And, you know, this was just like outside the realm of my family. It was just a surprise, but um, so sweet. And um, so I did sit down. And um, when I sat down, you know, suddenly I just had this welling up of feeling. Um, you know, I was humiliated. I was embarrassed. Um, I was shocked, you know, really shocked physically of like being upright and flat on my face in the space of about a second. And, um, you know, I was like kind of breathless because my breath had been sort of knocked out of me and um, kind of physically shaken up. And, um, you know, also, like, there were memories of when I was sort of more invulnerable and my children were littler and, and also thoughts about the future of, like, well, what, what did this mean? Would I fall more? You know, just, like, so many things in that moment of sitting there. I felt a little bit like crying, actually. Um, and, you know, I came across a word, and this is um, a word that um, a writer that I like a lot named Elena Ferrante, who some of you may be familiar with, um, uses kind of for these moments when many things are present or come up. She calls it a swarm. Um, and it felt like a swarm. And um, another writer named rules and all kind of commenting on that feeling of swarm said a swarm possesses its own discipline but moves untethered nothing about the notion of a swarm comforts or consoles it doesn't contain like a story it allows contradiction dissonance doubt pure imminence, movement, and open destiny. So the words that really stand out for me from that are allow and open. And um, 
you know, I was sort of in that moment, you know, I, I couldn't help really opening to all the physical and emotional and the thoughts that came up. And, but I realized that my tendency, and I'm sure we share this, many of us is to kind of not open to those things and not open completely to them, and especially the ones that are, you know, we want to brush off or move past or ignore, um, which was my impulse. Um, so that's all of the speaking stories. And um, now I'm going to move on to a Suzuki Roshi story. And this is a story that I heard a long time ago, and I cannot remember who told me. Um, and I don't know if other people know this story. Um, and I was sort of uneasy about sharing it because I couldn't, I couldn't, I heard it so long ago, I wasn't even sure I remembered it correctly. But it's been a really meaningful story to me. Um, so finally, I just, um, I don't think Sojin told me this story, but I finally wrote Red Anderson and, and I asked him if he knew this story. Well, he told me this story because I thought maybe he did. He's a teacher, for those of you who don't know him, at Green Gulch in San Francisco Zen Center. And he knew Suzuki Roshi well. Um, so I wrote him and um, he wrote me back and I'll tell you what he said, but first I'll tell you the story, which is the way I remember it, uh, which is that whoever told me the story was driving Suzuki Roshi from San Francisco Zen Center to Tassajara at sunset. And the person who was driving said, the sunset is beautiful. And Suzuki Roshi said, to say something is beautiful is a sin. <laughs> and, you know, I sort of wondered, like when I first heard that, like, does he know what sin, does Suzuki Roshi know what that word means in our culture? Is, is, that, is that something he doesn't quite understand? It's such a potent word. But um, anyway, so I, like I said, I asked Fred Anderson and he responded, um, there may, of course, be many memories of this teaching. Here's my memory. So this is his. Early in my time with him, I heard him say, when you say something is beautiful, that is a sin. And then Reb went on to say, that surprised me, and yet I was in deep accord with it, and I still am. And then he said, the part about driving to Tassajara might be somebody else's story. <laughs> um, so he was surprised by it. Red was. I was really surprised by it. And of course, I say it all the time to this day. I say things are beautiful. And I, you know, say many other similar things. Um, so I'm definitely part of this. Um, whatever, sin, but um, when I think about it, as I say, I really think about it often, I, I realize that in a way, when you say a sunset is beautiful, 
you sort of contain it in a certain way. Or that's what I feel, that you contain it or you label it or you pigeonhole it. And in a certain way, it, it releases you from actually completely experiencing it. And, um, and it's also, you know, it saves you from, you know, that feeling of really not knowing, you know, which is another kind of phrase we use a lot of, just not knowing. Um, and so, you know, I realized that that kind of allowing is, um, you know, it's, it's tempting to try, try to contain things, to kind of know what they are or pigeonhole them, but um, there's a kind of a openness and sort of um, experience that maybe comes from the backward step <laughs> of sort of stepping back a little bit. You know, an example, a little example might be if the airplane went over or a dog was barking, or if an airplane went over, you would say, you might say, oh, airplane. But you wouldn't, you might be sort of done listening then. Um, you know, it wouldn't be like really a, like allowing the sound to be there unknown. And of course, every airplane really is different. And every airplane sounds different. And um, that's kind of daunting, really, I think. Um, and um, sort of to like turn toward that sound without trying to contain it, you know, takes a special kind of allowing, I think. Um, and of course, um, that's true of emotions, kind of in a big way. Um, pretty much any emotion, I think. I mean, if somebody were to say something to you that made you angry, you could say, I'm angry. But again, you know, if you step back a little, like, there's so many ways to be angry. I mean, there's so many parts of that, like, you could be irritated, or you could be annoyed, or you could just have a feeling in your body. Um, it could be something altogether unnameable. But again, it's tempting to label it. It's tempting to know it. And it's a little frightening, I think, to not know it. Um, um, I, I had the thought in the middle of thinking about this talk that really every breath is different. And I'm kind of overwhelmed by that thought, like every breath is different. Um, you know, that's a little different than just sort of feeling your breath is like, that's a kind of opening that even, I don't want to do that. Um, 
So I will say that um, our sitting practice is kind of a, I guess what one thing I want to say before I go on is to say that, um, you know, if a truck's barreling down the street toward you and you hear it, I'm not encouraging you to like stop and say, what is that sound? I want to be, you know, I, you know, you step out of the way. It's impractical in a certain way to, um, to not label things. It's kind of need to do that. Um, and, um, but there are times when there's a different possibility. And I would say that when we sit is one of those times. And, um, when we sit in the Zendo, we're, um, pretty well taken care of. Um, things are quiet. Not too much is happening in that space usually. Um, and I think also our posture is, you know, whether we're in a chair or we're sitting cross-legged or we're sitting on a bench that we're fairly stable. Um, so that opening or allowing is a little bit easier or it feels a little bit more possible um and you know to kind of let things be as they are moment after moment and sort of change and not have to kind of identify and define and decide and make decisions some of that gets taken away um and So it's kind of an opportunity to sort of explore this. It's just this. And, um, and sort of explore the question, what is this? Um, and <clears throat> I'm, I'm kind of, I have to ask myself sometimes, why? Why are we doing this? What, what is the, you know, why turn toward all this stuff, you know? And um, when I first started studying with Joko Beck, I, um, I did my first long session, I think it was seven days, and it was a pretty big experience for me. And um, toward the end of the session, she saw everybody every day. I, I talked to her at the end of the session and she said, well, you know, how are you doing? How was this for you? And I, and I just, just out of my mouth came over, I feel braver. Um, and I sort of felt like I, I could actually be open for more. That the kind of things that I tended to deny or suppress, I felt more open to. And, you know, she kind of nodded her head and kind of got with that. And I wouldn't so much use that now, um, that word, but um, people use the word joy, um, which I actually can relate to pretty well, but, but it's awfully close for me to happiness, which um, this isn't necessarily happiness. 
and it's kind of an opening to things that are sometimes very sad to grief and to suffering. So happiness and joy are just a little bit too close for me. Um, I could use the word enjoyment. Uh, that's a little bit better, I think, for me. It's like, I think, just enjoying it all a little bit more, along with that openness. But maybe the word that works the best right now um, is the word freedom. That it, it allows me a kind of freedom in the world to sort of um, take it in and not push it away, to turn toward it rather than away from it. Um, so maybe a freedom to turn toward a bigger palette. So I think that's really the end of my talk. That's what I have to say today. You're laughing. <laughs> um, and um, so I'll open it up for your. I feel a little bit like during the summer I got kind of obsessed or narrow minded about this subject. So, you know, I am happy to open it up and have your questions and your thoughts. Yes. Well, thank you. It turns out this is going to dovetail very nicely with the talk I'm planning to give next week. So. Mm -hmm. But the question I have for you is, you've addressed this. How would you speak of just? Ooh. <laughs> That's a really good question because um, I feel like um, being aware of your breath is just, and um, being aware of your posture is just, just also. Um, but I feel being open to everything um, is a little harder for me to see as just, but I think that's just too. Um, I, I guess I'll also say that, you know, Suzuki Roshi's phrase, um, things as it is, um, <coughs> one is tempted often to say, I am tempted often to say things as they is or things as they are, even when I'm quoting Suzuki Roshi. And I realize that he says it because it's all one, right? So. It's creating the singularity. Right. It's, it's a, I mean, one of the things that Reb said in his thing is it surprised me. And I think often these things are surprising, and that's a surprising one to me. Things as it is kind of always surprises me. There's a question back here. Thank you for your talk. Um, you spoke a little about how this uh, remote place you visit, can you say the name again? Stahegan. It actually means the way through. Stahegan. Uh, when you visit Stahegan, 
it's an opportunity to really be with this inquiry in a different environment. And I'm curious to hear you talk about your, your experience of that transition back from Sweden to a place like Oakland. And how does that shift the space you can hold for an inquiry like that if it does shift or what differences you notice? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and it sounds like maybe you have some experience with it. <laughs> and um, as I say, I, I often go there, and I often go there for a fairly long time every, every year. And I guess every year coming back is a little bit different. Um, mostly, I just say for myself, what I notice is, um, A little bit like Sashim, it's like, it's a place that I can't distract myself as easily. And it's so tempting to distract oneself. I mean, um, you know, I kind of think of myself as a Zen student, and I, I, I really notice how tempting the world is. And um, so, I'm busier. I'm... And I like being busy, you know? I like it, actually. Um, and I don't like it, but I also like it. And, um, and I'm, I'm drawn to, you know, participating more. I'm a little more wary. I'm quite a bit more, I mean, in, in Sedegan, like, because you have to either hike out or take a boat out, nobody ever steals anything. You know, it's like you can leave, you know, like, every possession you have out on the boat dock and nobody will take it. Um, so, and I, you know, you never like your car, you never like your house. Um, so that kind of weariness, that kind of, you know, how many cars are broken in and they up with every day, you know, that kind of thinking, you don't, you don't have so much that kind of weary feeling. So I guess that's kind of what I say. And I try, to stay present. I try to stay open. It's, it's harder for me. We have a question online. <laughs> what? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I will. Mm -hmm. Take this one first? Yeah. Okay. Thank you for your talk. I was wondering, maybe you could say a few words about justice and children and justice in your experience of being a mother and children and I'm imagining like when they're young when it's sometimes tough to be with them and they say you know it's beautiful or they just say <laughs> wow you know but maybe a few words of what does justice mean you know when you are when you are a parent yeah um Well, now I'm a grandparent, so I have some day-to-day some -day experience of this, I guess a little bit more. Um, and there's really a lot I could say about it, I think, but um, one thing is I, I don't think, I think kids learn to do that, to say this is beautiful. I think they learn that from us. Um, 
you know, I think more they're just kind of more open and curious um, about about what comes up in their lives, or or they push it away more actively. Um, <laughs> you know, and as a parent, I would say I was really open to them, and sometimes I really wasn't. And um, you know, I had to be honest about that. So, I think I hope that's kind of what you're asking. I'm sorry, Ken. No. Um, the uh, saying something beautiful as a sin. Uh, reminds me of another uh, famous Zen dialogue where you have uh, two of these Zen guys um, out somewhere and one of them sort of, they're looking at the mountains and one of them says, is not this reality? And you can kind of see it's capital R reality. And the other one says, yes, but it's a pity to say so. <laughs> and uh i kind of i like that but i also like that the sin sin one i'm actually delighted to see that he would say that uh because i think it's getting to the same general idea that in some situations uh you just don't want to do that you're just mucking it up by doing that. Obviously, in other situations, you're overwhelmed and you say, boy, that really is beautiful. Wow. <laughs> That's one thing. But just to sort of routinely say, oh, isn't that a beautiful sunset? Uh, it does kind of potentially spoil it or demean it or uh, take away something of that. But I think it's, it's uh, to say it's a sin uh, is just a stronger way of saying that. <laughs> the same thing, like the the thing that it's a pity to say that is is a little more mellow. Okay, yes, I totally agree, but <laughs> don't say it all the time, please. <laughs> so I just think those uh, there's sort of two different ways of getting at the same point there. Well, I agree with you. Um, I also think the word sin made me never forget what he said. I, know, I think I might have, if he'd said pity, I might have forgotten, but I don't think I would ever forget this. So. Um, there's someone else online, and I can't really see who it is. Um, no? Yes? Oh, there, too. Hi, Alan. Thank you so much. I always... Um, love the images <laughs> that you bring back from the trail. They're very beautiful and visceral. And what a pity it is to say so. Um, I, it, I, I was remembering that one time someone asked uh, Sojin Roshi some question about justice. And he said that justice is just this. And I've really pondered that over the years. Uh, what what really did he mean by that? And one of the things that uh, came up is something about living by vow. And so I'm wondering, um, how do you experience just this in relationship with living by vow? 
Um, well, I'm not sure I have an answer for that. Um, I, I, but I'll tell you what comes up in my mind. Um, I think it's a really important question, actually. Um, and sort of maybe what I'm hearing is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, you know, if, if you're opening to just this, um, do you do anything about it? Is that kind of what your question is? Oh, uh, well, you're reminding me that uh, one time Sojin Roshi also said that uh, our responsibility is our response ability, our ability to respond. And I, so that, that, that's the resonance I hear in what you're saying. Um, the, the, the question is always to me, how, how, when the tree frogs are just bloop <laughs> and aware of all those aspects that you talked about, who can say what is right and wrong and yet in the moment, what is living by vow and responsibility? I'm not, I'm not sure what in the moment living by vow is. I don't really know how to answer that. Um, maybe you have a response, but my feeling is that, um, you know, taking something in and being present for it, um, you know, does sort of um, clarify what your response is going to be. Um, to take it completely in clarifies your response. And that could be in the moment, or it could not be just in the moment. It could be a very thoughtful, long-term commitment. But being present for what's really happening, what's really going on, and also what you're capable of. I mean, there's also the awareness of your capacity um, and your limitations. Um, I think to be present for all of that and then to move forward seems fruitful to me. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. Um, I, I, um, the sunset, it's beautiful. It's a sin to say that. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, wow, the sky is hazy and it's smoky. And the sin of that compared to the sin. And I, I don't, I think the word sin throws it off. Um, so those seem to be the same coin and different sides. And I'm curious, and then there's the whole added thing is often there's a beautiful sunset because of the particulate matter in the sky. So I'd like to hear you just talk about those two different spoken or observed sins, how they feel to you when you know that and how you live with it, work with it. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, so we're talking about smoke, which I have a lot of experience with, mostly in speaking. 
Um, and, you know, that's one of those situations, I think, where there's a practical, there's a truck coming at you. You know, there's like, you know, the smoke is, you know, 250 p.m. 2.5s. And, you know, I need to do something about that, like turn my air filter on. There's that side of it. There's the other side of it, which is, you know, taking it in. What is this? What is this? What is this experience? So there's there's both sides of that one. Um, and the one about the beautiful sunset. It's great. Did that answer your question? The one about the beautiful sunset is great, is the one about the terrible haze. Is that also great? No, that's not great. That just is. You know, and it is, and you need to wear your mask and turn on your air filter. And then there's some experience of it also that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to react to. That's just, it's smoky. Oh, yeah, thanks, uh, Ellen, for such a uh, rich talk. I mean, at, at a lot of levels, I could just feel what you were talking about. And that that thing of naming, it brought to mind, uh, there's a scene in Blood Meridian. It's a Cormac McCarthy book where this person, they're out in the West and they're sort of exploring and he's this character, the judge. And he's collecting all these little plants. And uh, at the end of the day, he sits down and he sketches them in a book. And then he gives them a name and then he throws them in the fire. <laughs> and somebody asked him, you know, Judge, why are you doing that? And he says, if I can name it, I can control it. <sighs> and so that, when I read that, it really, uh, spoke to me because I see how much my naming is wanting to control and in my own practice recently I've seen how important feeling safe is for me that, that in order to not reach out it's almost an aggressive act you know to name everything because you're ordering it and you know what's going to happen and you can predict it versus just allowing it to be it. And that can feel scary, you know, a little frightening. And so I, I'm trying to work with uh, personally, just allowing, allowing that to be there, but then also reassuring myself somehow that it's okay, that I'm safe. And I wonder if you could speak to that, if you have that sense of I do. The, I, the same I know problem. exactly what you're talking about. I feel that too. It's like things, and I love the word control. That actually isn't a word that I said, but I think that's a really good word. And um, I do, I feel that. I feel afraid, you know, that things are going to be, that, you know, I mean, if every breath is different, I mean, mm -hmm. like, what does that mean? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, that's very, yeah. very interesting. I like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you. We get to stop now.